The Triathlon Show 363. Hey, what's up everybody? Welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm Ross Michael and on today's episode I interview Professor Evin Sandbach. Eivind works at the Center for Elite Sports Research at the Norwegian University for Science and Technology. And uh, the research he has conducted over the years is uh, covers vast areas and uh, sports. But what we'll discuss mostly today is uh, going a bit deeper into a recent review paper that Eivind and his team conducted on the training characteristics of world-class distance runners. So that will be our main topic for today. But before we get into that, big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Fuel and Hydration, that create sports nutrition products including fueling and hydration products and they help you use them effectively through a range of free tools services and content the fuel and hydration planner on their website is a one-stop shop for figuring out an effective race hydration and fueling strategy for you it's free and super easy to use it only takes a couple of minutes to answer a handful of questions and then you get a detailed simple and effective race plan they also offer free video consultations as a listener of the podcast you can get 15 percent off your order of the range of electrolyte and carbohydrate products by using the code TTS22 at checkout on precisionfuelandhydration.com. And thank you to Senate. The Senate Indoor Swim Trainer is a unique dryland swim trainer that allows you to improve technique, power, and swim training consistency. It is a perfect tool to complement your pool and open water swimming, as it allows you to do very specific power and technique work, including working on your catch and your core activation, and it makes it easier to stay consistent even when you can't go to the pool. You can even use it to do activation work before a pool or open water swim, or to do swim, bike, brick workouts more easily. You can try the Senate risk-free for up to 30 days Uh, so if you don't love it just send it back and you can get a special tts bundle including the swim bench and a bunch of senate training plans and on-demand workouts on senateswimtrainer.com forward slash tts now without any further ado let's get into the interview with professor evin sandbach welcome to that triathlon show evin how are you doing thank you i'm really really pleasure to speak to you so to talk about my some of my favorite areas that is training yeah and uh for the listeners that don't know you of course you have done a lot of research and you have a lot of <laughs> a lot of papers out there but can you uh, start by giving in your own words describe your background within endurance sports and, and a little bit more about what you're doing now and what you have been up to in the uh, in the last decades and years in endurance sports yeah i um i grew up in norway as um, as a cross-country skier from a quite young age, and and I also did quite some running athletics, uh, and then I kind of decided to focus on cross country skiing, and I really pursued my re- my skiing career uh, until I realized that um, I will not attend any world championships. Uh, I was uh, a few times allowed to to participate in, in the World Cup uh, on the national group in Norway, which is not so bad, but to take, to take the next step was, was difficult. So, so then I was, I was also studying sports science and exercise physiology. So I was uh, allowed to coach a few good athletes, um, also join national, the national team and be kind of a helping coach there. And, and then gradually I... I started to work for Olympia Toppen, Norwegian Top Sports Center, um, and in collaboration between uh, 
university in Trondheim, Antanu, and the Olympia Toppen. I, I started on my my PhD. That was also on on sprint cross country skiing, and uh, and where we try to look at the demands there, and also how how can you train to become good sprint skiers. So that's what I've done. After that, combining research, working with athletes and coaches. Um, so I was kind of working in Olympia Toppen for 13 years. Uh, some years ahead of research and development there. And uh, at the same time, did my research at the Norwegian University of Science and Technology. So now I'm now I'm work as a professor at Antanu and the director of the Center for Elite Sports Research, which is my my main thing. And then I, I have a, a cool position, a smaller one, just at, at the School of Sports Science at um, the Arctic University of Norway, where we do this Pandura project, the female endurance athletes, where we put some extra emphasis on that. So, yeah, so I've been allowed to work in elite sports and research uh, for uh, at least the last 15, 20 years. Yeah, excellent. And what would you say in the in the last few years, maybe, do you have any areas that you have been doing the most? What are the, the areas of research you have been focusing on the most? I did I did a lot on um, on cross country skiing um, in the beginning, and then uh, very often we looked into the demands of the sport. Kind of what what are really the demands of sprint cross country skiing that I started with, and then we looked at distance cross country skiing. We looked now a lot on the, on the mass starts. Um, then I I had PhD students working on sex differences. Um, There was actually, and then we looked more into the to, to women, not only on men. That was mostly researched on before. So we started a pathway to look into to women as well and their characteristics. And then, of course, <laughs> I tried to use the same framework on on other sports. So we had very nice uh, projects on Nordic combined, on biathlon. We looked into cycling. We started now a bit on triathlon, and. Um, And uh, always with the same kind of uh, way of thinking, looking into the demands of the sport and how you can meet those demands with uh, optimizing the training. So it's a mix from descriptive studies, um, describing the demands or what the best athletes are training to intervention studies where we look more into the effects of different types of of training per se. Um And also some studies where we look more into kind of mechanisms and molecular mechanisms associated with with um, different types of training. So I've been very lucky to have many good PhD students and postdocs, and been collaborating with many many good professors. So that's been a, a journey that I'm really been really lucky to be on board. Yeah, that's something that is very noticeable when reading just research within endurance sports in general that uh, I always uh, am surprised by just how frequently there are really excellent papers coming out of Norway in general and, and quite often from uh, your lab uh, at NTNU. And, uh, but yeah, you're clearly doing, doing some great work there. Um, we will be quite focused in this interview because there's obviously a lot we could talk about, but uh, we will talk about a relatively newly published study uh, that uh, that you were involved with, with the training characteristics of world-class distance runners. So as you said, one of those descriptive studies, 
So can you introduce this uh, research? What was the background behind uh, setting out to do this kind of review? Yeah, first I want to acknowledge Thomas Haugen, who um, took the initiative for this study. And we, we did several studies together. And um, then he teamed up with Aspen Tunnison and Stephen Saylor. So we were kind of a, a group of four. Uh, we had previously looked at sprint running, actually, and used the same type of framework there. Then we looked into middle distance, and then we ended up this triology with uh, with long distance running. So, so it was basically the fact that, in our view, the best coaches and the best athletes are very often ahead of science. So we thought that, okay, uh, what the literature is lacking is actually trying to grasp what are really the best athletes doing uh, and, and their coaches, what are their their philosophies around this and then trying to to provide an overview of kind of existing literature on it but also kind of not kind of published uh, scientific literature that can help us to maybe grasp um, some some new ideas uh, generate some new new hypotheses and also also go a bit ahead what's what has previously been been published. So what kind of sources are we talking about there when, when you say go beyond the, the literature? No, of course, we, we, we used PubMed and, uh, and Google Scholar and looked into kind of the literature, of course, to get an overview of what is, what is there already. Um, and thereafter, we looked more at what we called results-proven practice. That was kind of non-scientific, but publicly available um, English training information. So that's from podium athletes and international coaches um, and, and also those winning the world marathon majors. Um, so that's from websites like probably out of Runners Universe, uh, Sweet Elite, Running Science, Let's Run, Runners Tribe, this type of... And uh, download them um, and then try to to grasp kind of the main the main content and systematize that and try to see because of course it's a mix and art of science what what the best athletes and coaches are doing but we try to grasp kind of the main main factors that we we saw were common among among good distance runners and marathon runners so that was a and then of course we looked into long distance running books and some did some Google search as well, trying to really grasp what is what is out there of information that we can try to interpret as good as possible. Mm. I, th I think here it's important to highlight for listeners that are maybe not as familiar with how the uh, scientific research method is normally done is that what, what you did is quite unique because usually a review like this would focus on anything that has been published and peer-reviewed before, and but not sources that are outside of the scientific literature. So obviously that has advantages in that it gives you a lot more information and data to, to work with. And uh, perhaps also in some cases it can be a bit more, maybe not as systematic, but maybe it can be more detailed in some ways when you see a training log 
so can, can you explain a bit more what you think are the strengths and the limitations about this method of doing a review? Yeah, of course, we call this kind of results-proven practice. And we, we have a view that kind of unique athletes and coaches are often ahead of what has been published. And also, it's very difficult to do research on these athletes because they found a formula that apparently worked for them. And they don't want to change that, so you can't go in and intervene. Uh, and this is, this is, of course, something that we can learn from uh, and at least see what seems to work across athletes who succeed. But on the other hand, you have kind of a confirmation bias because maybe the, those who don't succeed do pretty much the same. Um, so that's, very, that's something you need to be very aware of uh, while doing this type of research. So... So you don't kind of go into your echo chamber and, and uh, without being a bit critical towards towards uh, the data that you collect. So, so we, we try to be reasonable in our uh, our interpretations. But then, of course, this, yes. this is not peer reviewed. Um, it's training logs or even secondary sources. Uh, there's a male dominance. It's not so many women in our material, unfortunately. Uh, there are a few training groups that have been very open about their training. Other groups are more locked, so you kind of just need to be aware that it might be biased by a few groups. And, and of course, they use different types of intensity zones and terminologies that we really tried to, uh, at least where we conclude, where we try to put it into the same framework um, in, in our way of interpreting it so yeah and then then it's kind of there might be a kind of a prescription execution difference that is not taken into account because uh it's not the training program that is important but what you actually did and how you responded to training um and that of course we we have no analysis of it we have mainly the training programs or the training logs and then of course we don't know we have a history of doping in long distance running and marathon only the few last weeks we see so a lot of cases coming out. So, 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 so um, although we excluded those who were uh, taking for doping, we, we that is basically a, also a, might be a limitation in our material. Yeah, and final question before we get into some of your findings, but can you just give some examples of well-known names of runners that would be that that you had included in your in your data set? Yeah, I can just start on the top there. We have types like Saida Wita, who were, had many Olympic Olympic gold and and uh, also world records. We we can we have Kenenisa Bekele, for example. Uh, Joshua Chaptigai, uh, Steven Cerono, Haile Gebrezelossi, uh, and Eliud Kipchoge, of course, who is a very famous, good one, maybe the GOAT, as they call him. Uh, then we have women like uh, Ingrid Christiansen, that was in the 80s, uh, had world records from, I think, from 3000 to Marathon. Um, yeah, so these, these are typical examples of the, the athletes that we we have uh, information uh, about, uh, and then we have some famous coaches, of course, like uh, from from uh, Bill Bowerman and Jack Daniels to to more recent coaches as 
such as uh, Renato Canova and, and uh, Joe Wigil and these guys. So it's um, yeah, yeah, I think it's um, it's uh, there are lots of coaches. I think we have sixteen coaches and fifty nine world leading athletes. So that's what we included in total. Yeah, those are good names. Good names to have there. Uh, so let's get into some of your findings. And well, you investigated a lot of things just to to give an overview here for the listeners. You looked at training periodization, competition scheduling, uh, training volume, workouts, training density distribution, and uh, strength training, those tapering altitude, and so on. So we'll just try to touch on uh, a few of those or the most important ones. So maybe we can start with uh, periodization, uh, training periodization, and, and competition scheduling. So what, what did you find in those areas? Of course, you have, if we talk where it simplifies, you have a preparation period where you try to build up capacities. Uh, and, and then, of course, that's the period where athletes are trying to maintain capacities that are good enough and further develop those you want to, to, to improve. Uh, then you often have a kind of more a specific period towards the competition season uh, where, where, um, going from the general preparation period with very often high volume to build kind of what they call the aerobic foundation um, to to kind of uh, the specific preparation period where the focus is gradually uh, shifting towards uh, a higher volume of, of uh, race pace intensity. Uh, and then, of course, you come into the competition uh, period and then after the competition period of most athletes have one to four weeks kind of with with less training or some even no training for for a while to to recover after the competition period and then and i think it's kind of what we see in track runners is kind of a high volume in total uh, it's um all who have succeeded have they are running a lot uh, with around 80% of that volume being at what we call low, low intensity. They still run fast because they're so good, <laughs> but, uh, but it's, it's at low metabolic intensity. Uh, and then a quite high volume of kind of some threshold endurance training, which is kind of typical. And then, then transitioning towards a kind of a period with more race-based training. Um, Although we see they are careful not to overuse it or introduce it too early, and they also maintain the subtrashal endurance training um, throughout kind of the competition period. Um, I think it's quite interesting because you see kind of that you you you, you just shift the focus on what is what what capacities do you want to maintain? Is also so that during the the um, the preparation period, you also, um, uh, some of them, they they are uh, involved in a few competitions, so they have some some high intensity work, not often, but it's kind of, there is a maintenance of it. And also when you come to the competition period, you, you maintain kind of the volume quite well, you maintain the sub-threshold focus, so it's not kind of a total change as sometimes is seen in more general periodization literature, but it is gradual shift uh, 
And I think you, you just change the factors that you put emphasis on to develop, while other factors you try to maintain uh, those capacities. And I think that's, that's an important uh, thing to look at. So there's not a rapid change. There is gradual changes and not extreme changes. But, but um, I think that's, that's common for all athletes, although there are individual differences. So then marathon runners, there is a different pattern, I would say, than in, uh, in uh, track runners. Um, so they, you could say that uh, they might introduce a little bit more focus on kind of for a marathon runner, high, higher speeds early in the cycle and then prioritize more race-specific long work, workouts towards the marathons. So it's um, while, while track runners are kind of having more the sub-threshold early and then have more at higher intensity towards their competition, marathoners, they compete at sub-threshold intensities. So you kind of, especially for marathon runners who need more speed, of course, they need to focus on that earlier in the training cycles and don't then go with the higher speed potential towards the 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 more marathon specific workouts and have that put put that uh, as the the main focus of the training week. So, so I think, um, but of course, in a marathon runner, if you come from track running with high speed capacity, you might kind of have a different way uh, of paradising or training in the preparation period than someone who has done marathon for 10 years. Mm. So. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, just a couple of follow-up questions. When we talk about sub-threshold running in this context, can, can you maybe give some examples of what some workouts might look like in, in that? We're talking about training in the heavy intensity domain uh, when, when we're talking sub-threshold training in this context, right? Yeah, yeah. It's... It, you can say it's it can be done different ways. Of course, you have if you look at the different types of methods, it's it's very often done as intervals. Um, but it can also then is is very often long intervals with relatively short breaks. So you can kind of accumulate um, uh, quite long uh, total distance during those sessions. Um, but of course, you can also do this as um, as uh, progressive long runs, where you kind of increase the speed and then you come up to that pace uh, the last part of the the session. Uh, kind of a fartlek is also another method if you where it kind of it can be in varying terrain over thirty to sixty minutes, or you kind of have uh, a little bit unsystematic. Um, or systematic. I think you see that in Kenya they have quite a systematic fartlek. Um, so it's different ways of of, uh, of doing these type of, of trainings. Uh, we have a table in our paper where we try to show the different tools that athletes use. Um, and I think also different athletes with different physiological profiles might use different tools because depending on what what they want to target or what they need to target to take the next step. Mm, yeah. And uh, the paper is open access. So we'll have a link of course in the show notes. So, uh, so listeners can go and have a, have a look at the table to see some specifics. Uh, one other question on uh, uh, 
did when when we were, when we were talking about well we were talking about the periodization but we were mentioning the types of workouts done so this is already going into what the workouts look like but did could can you comment on whether the these runners world class runners typically go very hard in their workouts or if that depends a bit on the period like in the base training they're not really close to their max capacity but then maybe in the race preparation they do a few workouts that are basically at max capacity what what does that look like uh, i would say that how it looks like from 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 what we've seen is that it's kind of it's very seldom all out uh, it's controlled work and and what they train so many hours and kilometers per week that they do it's kind of uh, you need to think a bit like a chess player because if you kind of go all out on one session it has consequences for the upcoming two three four sessions so so if you kind of just keep it a controlled intensity depending on of course what the aim is with the session um I think then it, it seems like, especially during the preparation period, that they're able to accumulate uh, more work that is close enough to being race specific, um, and the total kind of the total volume of training. So, so you don't see that they are, are training kind of at at max effort very often, um, and I think that 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 has to do with that gives them the possibility to accumulate this work and then also avoid kind of setbacks and injuries and, and be in control of the training. So, so in running, I think kind of intensity steering is, is important uh, and always having control over the, the total accumulation of load that you, you put on an athlete. Mm, yeah no that's uh very interesting and what about the competition uh scheduling so how how many races do these athletes typically do the track runners and the marathon runners and and when when would they do races yeah it's it's of course it, it depends a bit because some do this double periodization the end indoor or the cross-country period and then kind of a, the 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 track outdoor track running period um, or some just focus on the summer season uh, among the distance uh, runners uh, but we found an average of nine competitions but it's a quite a big standard deviation so some they use probably competitions also as part of their training uh, to build up um, and then uh, but there are not so many major and important competitions uh, compared to some other sports I looked into, it's very seldom that a cross-country skier does less than 30 competitions a year. So, but it, it also has to do with the load uh, of doing these, these running competitions. It's very high mechanical load and, and also different culture of how much you compete. Um, among the marathoners, it's very often kind of you have the spring and you have the autumn marathon. Uh, and it's very very seldom that you see more than two uh, marathons a, a year, and then maybe one or two half marathons, and then kind of shorter distances. So in, in total, we we found an average of six uh, competitions, also with a decent standard deviation. So. Hmm. 
Yeah. Um, and uh, in terms of training, training volume, if we dive a, deep, deep, a bit deeper into that, what, what are the typical training volumes that you found? Yeah, if you look at kind of distance runners uh, in kind of the preparation period, um, we found, yeah, we'll say around 130 to 190 is what we wrote. Um, uh, and then we wrote... That's kilo- kilometers, kilometers, kilometers per, per week. week. Yeah. And then we a little bit more for the marathon, maybe 30 kilometers more, so 160 to 220. But of course, you, you see periods or single weeks or... Some athletes that are extreme, that are marathoners with up to 250 plus, uh, and also track runners who do, do over 200. But I think this is kind of what the average is if you look into the, to the entire period we found these kilometers. But then, then you come back again, you have some who do quite a lot of, of, um, of alternative training. Uh, some are kind of uh, having very weak, a couple of weekly strength training sessions. Uh, some use alternative modes because they don't want to get injured. Um, and then it also depends on what type of terrain you're running in. If you only run kind of flat or if you also have uh, a little bit more of the hilly terrain that some athletes are choosing in the surface. So, so it's not only about the kilometers, it's also about what you add on uh, in addition to the specific kilometers and what surface you run on and what terrain you you run on so but it's quite a lot of kilometers and that's not very surprising i would assume (laughs) Mm, yeah yeah i I think that's one of the one of the most important things to have as a runner is probably the ability to to not get injured and there are of course multiple factors that go into that like um, mechanics and uh and recovery, of course, but but yeah, some some things that you can impact, but some things that are maybe a little bit more difficult to impact, and just kind of you're almost born with them, or at least uh, they are somewhat innate. Do, do, would you agree with that? Yeah, I agree. And it's, of course, it's if you kind of I also also look a bit on the triathletes and and have a, a good dialogue with the coaches of Norwegian triathlon, and I, of course. In this type of sports, and where you have either you can use different modes, so you have modes where you kind of don't have so high mechanical loading, you can kind of endure many more hours, maybe twice as many hours per week than a runner, um, because you are limited by the the, um, the mechanical loading, especially when running on hard surface. So. That's what we see also on the, of course, here in Norway, we have some, some runners um, uh, who are doing some skiing in the winter because they don't want to get injured. Um, and of course, then they can accumulate much more hours than they could have done uh, in their running. So... Mm. So injury. Other than skiing, what do you see? What what do you see in uh, runners over the world? What are their favored cross training modes for those runners that do some form of cross training? Cycling or elliptigo is something that we have seen some athletes famously use. What what did you see were the most common ones? Yeah, I think of course those who are injured, uh, uh, a few of them running in water. Uh, this is a little bit outside what we saw and looked at here, but if of course, you, when they're injured, running in water is one method that is typically used. And of course, you have these 
you call it uh, ellipse, ellipse, elliptic uh, machines that are, mm. are uh, many say it's very boring, uh, but uh, you just need to do the work. Uh, I think in the countries where you have snow, it's kind of classical cross-country skiing can be a nice, um, nice way that uh, we see that some some use. Um, and of course, uh, of course, uh, um, you see le- le- less of cycling. But I know in Sweden, for example, now we had a we had a there there is a, a runner. Uh, I can't remember his name. I'm really sorry. I know you're Swedish, but <laughs> but he is he's actually actually Swedish speaking Finn. But <laughs> <laughs> well, he was uh, I think he was quite a lot in the media in Sweden now, but he. Looked, I talked a lot to the speed skater uh, from the pool and mm. uh, we started yeah. to do a lot of cycling as kind of to, to do, be able to do more uh, training. Um, and he had a very positive performance developing this year. So so you also see some who are cycling and might get an effect of that. But, but this is something we don't know from research. It's kind of the effect. Of course, yeah. you know you stimulate your central the central parts of, of the aerobic system, but kind of how similar it has to be to have an impact on actually running performance. We, yeah, we don't know. You need to run a lot. That that, yeah. is, that is what we know. But what do you do yeah. in addition? What tools you use in addition? There might be individual, maybe individuals who has kind of limitations in their kind of aerobic central system can can get an extra effect from from doing additional stuff that triggers that. But those who are mainly resisted by kind of the the running economy, they need to run more. So it might also be individual differences there. Mm, yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, what, what did define did the training volume change a lot across the the periodization of the season, or was it fairly steady uh, throughout throughout the year? Of course, when it's important competitions, you will need to kind of reduce volume a bit uh, towards the competitions. But I would say it's so they, they keep up training surprisingly well uh, throughout the year. Um, but there are different traditions, for example, in this transition period where they should recover after the competition period. You, you have some athletes who at least say that they take four, four weeks totally off. <laughs> Uh, and other athletes who say they take one or two weeks and then still they run 100 kilometers per week. So there are different traditions there. Um, mm. So it's very hard to say what is right. It's probably a mental mental recovery that is important as well. So in, in kind of how much people offload during this transition period is probably where we see the largest differences. Um, mm. There are different, needs. but no, no huge difference between the general preparation and the specific preparation when you're before tapering. So if you're 16 or let's say 12 weeks out or five weeks out from the race, maybe it's. Did you see a difference there, or was that very similar? Because you're still not tapering for the race, but you are getting. Yeah, close you, to you're race. quite close to the race before you really see the tapering. Uh, I think it's very often the last seven to ten days where you cannot see that. Uh, mm. Uh, and in, in championships, that's also the typical time where you come to the competition venue. Um, 
So, so compared to the literature, it's kind of they maintain volume a little bit longer uh, normally, and uh, it, it also depends a bit on how you set up the competition schedule. Those who are competing closer to the championships, for example, they of course need to reduce volume a bit because you need to have a total balance that is good. Those who prioritize training, they can maintain volume and even have a good training camp where they increase volume a bit. And then the last seven to ten days is, is tapering and reducing volume a bit. I think for the marathoners, you have also quite a few examples where people actually increase load until this last couple of weeks where you, where you reduce volume. Um, mm. So that's, um, yeah, I think in, in um, there is kind of, I would say, a, they deviate a little bit from what has shown in meta-analysis and stuff in the in research. So that that's interesting to see what the best when it when it comes to the taper specifically. Yeah. You mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. It seems uh, a little bit shorter than what than what we've found. But I was actually having this discussion with somebody earlier today about tapering, and uh, at least I haven't seen a lot of taper research recently. It seems like a lot of it was done, I don't know, a decade ago, and there are some meta-analysis five seven years ago but there there's not that it's not there's not that many studies coming out recently i don't think about tapering so maybe it's maybe it's a little bit behind what the best athletes are doing simply i i think so and i think it's kind of i think and also i think that's something um something i have thought about a lot lately is kind of what is actually tapering In, instead of thinking about what should you do you should have two weeks like this and one week like that and it's kind of, I think, more and more that you just need to remember what are the main kind of reason uh, behind a good taper. And that is that your specific, your race-specific capacities are as good as possible. You need to be as good trained as possible, specific for the distance that you want to compete in. And then you need to be able to utilize that that capacity. So it's kind of... You need to train up and, 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 and optimize your capacities for that given distance. And then you need sufficient time to recover mentally, but also physically. And then you need to mobilize. So it's kind of three phases for me. You have kind of, of course, what you did throughout the entire year. And that, of course, when the most important competitions are approaching, you are at your highest level. You have never been so good trained as when you're approaching a competition. Then you need to make sure that you are mentally and physically recovered. Um, and in the end, you need to mobilize both mentally and physically towards the competitions. Because if you, if you only recover, you probably will kind of lose tension. And uh, you need somehow to mobilize the body again. And then this is this is kind of defining that balance. It's you, you really need to look very carefully into what the situation is for the athletes. So what worked one season might not be optimal the next season because there are there might be have, have been a, some kind of a cold that you catched the athlete catched, or it might be that for some reason you didn't respond so well to the to the the, the preparation the the. the training period uh, approaching the championships or that there was a small injury or that maybe there was a competition that you needed to participate in that wasn't the year before. And all that would influence how many days you need for this tapering. 
and how much do you need to offload? And, and then again, is to find the individual patterns on, on how to mobilize the body to be really sharp when, when the competitions uh, are there. So that's kind of mm. my philosophy on it. Um, and not that kind of there is kind of a very static way of doing it. Yeah. No, that that makes sense. Like you, you have to think about it from what you want to achieve, and then then design design the taper accordingly. Rather than, I think it's the same with like you have seen it a bit in training intensity distribution recently. That some sometimes people try to fit the training intensity distribution to their training rather than planning the training, and then if the training is planned well, then the training intensity distribution takes care of itself. Yeah. So I think it's probably a little bit of the same situation with the, with the taper. But that being said, just to, uh, to understand the characteristics of these elite athletes better, when, when they get to those 7 to 10 days where you said that they start tapering, how does the, the volume change and the training characteristics change in that period? No, it's the typical. What you see, of course, is that that um, that uh, they reduce many, most of them maintain kind of their training frequency um, quite well because I think it's both about maintaining kind of your your daily rhythm, so you don't use, lose the daily rhythm. So, so kind of try to maintain a decent number of maybe you reduce it a little bit, but frequency of sessions are quite well maintained. You shorten the sessions a bit to kind of have less load and then maintain intensity. Uh, or sometimes you even have a few sessions that are even at higher speeds, but very often smart designs of the session. So you can, can train at race pace or kind of maybe some sessions a little bit above. Um, uh, and I think that's, um, that's the typical way of doing it in this offloading and, and and if you train 180 kilometers per week you kind of typically you go down to 110 120 for example uh, in the last mm. last week before mobilizing towards the towards these competitions but it's mm. yeah and and when when they are maintaining frequency, uh, we didn't talk about that yet. What what is a typical frequency of of runs that uh, these athletes do uh, in a in a week? Is it 11, 12, 13, 14 runs? Yeah, it, it, there are of course some they have kind of like to have one resting days, and then it normally ends up with eleven or twelve sessions. Very often twelve if you have one resting days. Others they have two resting sessions, so maybe. I would say an average of 12 sessions. Um, but uh, of course, you have some some athletes who sometimes do their morning sessions uh, and do three, three, three sessions uh, a day, uh, some days. Um, but kind of the normal pattern is two sessions a day and then uh, a resting day every week or every second week uh, for some, or you put in resting sessions uh, couple of times a week so, mm. so but you did, yep. it's not like in cycling that you do one session a day that is very long you split it up uh, both because the the running competitions marathon is quite long so then you often have these long runs with only one session a day uh, once or twice a week but um, for distance runners the competitions are so 
let's say short that you you don't need too many of these very long runs uh, and then you'd rather split it up in, in shorter runs yeah absolutely Spe- specificity is yeah. always <laughs> really important and uh yeah i mentioned training intensity distribution and and you talked earlier about 80% being low intensity what what about the moderate and high intensity how does that split and i i imagine that maybe there are some differences in periodization and between the track versus marathon runners so can you go into training intensity distribution a little bit yeah it's um if you kind of if, if you look at kind of I would say that most, and this is not all, but very often we see kind of three, I would say, heavy days <laughs> uh, during the week. And um, and these, these are kind of for the distance runs, very often the the moderate or high-intensity sessions. It's kind of more tra- threshold or sub-threshold sessions or uh, a few high, more high-intensity sessions that they have. Um, I think more... We haven't seen too much of it in this review. Of course, it's been there since the 1960s, so it's nothing new to have these kind of double thresholds or kind of have two two moderate or hard sessions per day, like the Ingebrigtsens, for example, has been introducing in Scandinavia. And that's also seen in many track runners throughout history. Uh, but it's not kind of the pattern that we found. Um, we, but we found three heavy days per week in many athletes, uh, and then some a little bit easier days in between. Um, and uh, and I would say the sub threshold sessions are uh, are very the, the most common during the the um, the preparation period. And then of course there is a, a gradual shift to adding more of of higher intensity. Uh, sessions but of course for 5000 meter runners or even those who are also running some 3000 1500 meter they they organize these very smart because it's uh it's kind of like um, you can say that if you do 25 times 400 meters with 30 second breaks and you run at 5000 meter speed uh you might you accumulate so much race specific kind of time uh without accumulating metabolic fatigue. So you can kind of call it metabolically some kind of, many call it a threshold session, but speed-wise, it's much closer to uh, a more higher intensity session. So so it's one thing is kind of the the speed that you train at, and the other thing is kind of the metabolic accumulation of fatigue that you want to reduce. Then of course, 10,000 meter runners and those are, a little bit higher would probably have most of their kind of sub-threshold metabolic sub-threshold sessions as as a little bit longer intervals um, and at a little bit lower speed than what you would see with those who are drifting at the at the lower lower part of long distance running. So so but there is this gradual shift in, in intensity um, and and th- there are quite quite large differences between athletes here because we, we said let's say 80 percent of the distance is is low intensity and then you have five to 15 percent at what we sub threshold uh, moderate intensity and and five to 15 percent at higher intensities 
of course, these were open 59 as they are kind of outliers, and, uh, and also the same for subthreshold. Um, so there are quite large ranges there, but but it is around 20% of the volume is what we see is in these these zones for the distance runners. But then for marathoners, I would say that the pattern is a little bit different because they build up their week much more around these long uh, marathon-specific sessions, especially when approaching the last yeah, 10 to 15 weeks before an important marathon. Um, and then they, of course, also have these normal intervals or or fast leg sessions uh, uh, once or twice a week in addition to that one. Um, but uh, but um, they build their, their week more around these marathon-specific sessions when it's approaching the, the competitions. So I think, uh, yeah. I think that sums up. Uh, it's very broad and uh, general, but... Um, but uh, the, it is kind of that there are individual pathways on this um, and individual preferences. Yeah. That we, we... Yeah. No, that's. I think that's a good answer, and and it kind of reflects what we just talked about. That it's more about finding the the pattern of training that works, and then the intensity distribution itself, the numbers. That's that's a consequence. That's not what your. That's not the goal. Yeah, and it's kind of what you also see if you look historically on it. It's, for example, how fast are your low-intensity sessions? Because you have kind of some athletes um, that are running quite fast on their, their low-intensity. They're kind of in, in the higher part of the low-intensity sessions quite commonly. Uh, while others are kind of a little bit more polarized there. They are lower at their the low intensity sessions and maybe then have the capacity to have a little bit more of the the training at these higher intensities. Um, so it, it's always about the total of your your um, your training. So so that's where kind of the small individual differences are and, and maybe that's also differences that are related to their physiological profile because you have a given background if you come from marathon or if you come from from 1500 meter it's quite a and you're running a 10,000 meter it's kind of you have very different training backgrounds and you have very different different uh, physiological profiles and then you probably need to 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 um, set up the training uh, differently for those types of athletes it's not that the big patterns are the same but kind of the the types of sessions and the small differences in training intensity distributions would probably reflect that they have a different background and profiles. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one more question about the specific sessions. So uh, I'm curious about the, the fastest uh, sessions that the athletes do. So for example, if we have a track runner who focuses on five and 10,000 meters, is it common for them to do uh, sessions that are faster than their 5K race pace or or is that not very common at all and the, the fastest they run would be around more or less 5K race pace? And uh, and for the marathoners, you mentioned that they might do more their fast running earlier in the season, but 
again what would what would the speed of that their fast running be would it be around 5k race pace even though that's not their focus or or do some runners do a lot of work that is quite quite a lot faster than than that kind of speed i would say that it depends on where you are in the in the the training year Uh, if you look at the preparation period it's it's quite a lot of these sub threshold training as we talked about and uh, and some sessions for example you have hill running for example they don't run at higher speeds but i think that the kind of the work that they do are are at a pretty high high uh, uh maybe high maybe, five, maybe five thousand meter or even faster um loads you can say uh, so there are kind of components in the training that is also triggering the kind of an over over speed um and I know that that um, they do these uh, kind of uh, strides, or or they have some some athletes are in this period running with spikes, uh, doing hundred meters or two hundred meters. They don't call it kind of um, they don't call it high intensity sessions, but they just do it to be up in kind of over speeds and to kind of prevent the injuries because you, if you if you don't run at these high speeds and even put on the spikes i think it's yeah, for too long time it might be a too rapid introduction again when you you start doing more specific sessions so just have that continuity in that without having a high load of it is is one method other athlete seems to do uh, sprints and some hill sprints just short 10 seconds uh, regularly to to both for the muscles to mobilize, uh, but also to, I think, trigger this overspeed. So it's um, so you maintain that. It's very seldom that you get long distance runner to be become much faster, but you can maintain speed. And I think it might also play a role for for uh, economy of running that you also see in a bit with plyometric training and strength training that if if you have limitations there, it might help your running economy too. Increase the to increase your your strength or your uh, your power somehow. So I think also to run is is it's something with running in over speed that is you can't avoid that for too long. But I don't think you need too much input of it. But then when you enter the kind of specific training periods before the competitions or in the competition period, there are are clear. Much, much more of the athletes are having um, intervals where they are running at uh, over speed, a uh, mm. little bit faster than what they compete at. But uh, of course, then you not so, so the so the load is not too high. You need to kind of have longer breaks, shorter intervals, and uh, and it has of course consequences for the. The other types of training so maybe the low intensity sessions that comes afterwards will be a little bit slower than so the total balance is in is uh, is there yeah and uh how common is strength training and uh, different types of strength and conditioning including also plyometric training uh how, how common is that it's, it's large differences uh, and also large differences what they do. It's the same with kind of, uh, you know, the, the Kenyan athletes, they have their flexibility programs, so their, their gym training that they do, uh, which is part of their culture. 
if that makes them better or not, we don't know, but it's at least they do it. Um, and then you have you have different regimes, but we should keep in mind that strength and kind of sprint and, and, and explosiveness training is it's a tool to for some athletes to have an overcapacity of strength and power that that might make you more economically. So you can actually it costs less to work so maximally when you have overcapacity or make you more fatigue resistant. So when you get fatigue, to have a little bit higher kind of roof of your strength and power, when kind of that is going down and you get more and more fatigued, it might help you to be a bit more fatigue resistant. That's the theory. Um, so that, that is one element, but then it needs to be specific for kind of for running. Um, and, and then it depends on, a bit on what the athlete lacks. If, it, if they lack strength, of course, that will be a focus if they lack power, uh, the ability to produce uh, force rapidly, then that will be in focus. Um, um, so you, and you need to look at kind of what exercises you choose in order to, to develop that for the individual athlete. So it's kind of it's very individual and specific, I think, what, what is needed. And then it's, of course, culture dependent. Um, and you don't really know if they do this because of their part of the culture or if it makes them better. But I think what it should be is that you need to individualize it. Um, mm. And then, of course, you have strength training to uh, avoid injuries. Um, and that's kind of something that is much more discussed. You, there is coming more and more research, uh, more on team sports than in running, but and more in sprint running than in long distance running, but there are exercises that we know can be, be, be um, reduce injury risks. Um, and and of course you have what what what, ex what exercises would would that be, for example? It, it, it's it's a big discussion. I think um, it's not my main expertise, and we didn't cover it that much in this review, but it. It's it's quite specific exercises towards kind of the the, the running uh, running pattern um, and towards kind of I think you need to to look at the individual athlete what are the risks for these athletes to get injured and then yeah. strengthen those so you kind of have a buffer uh, in strength yeah. um, when you then increase volume um, and then. Uh, then we didn't. I think there are some reviews out there on, on specific exercises that could be be used by by distance runners. So and then we, you don't have. Of course, you have sit ups and back exercises and these core exercises. That is a big discussion. Some some use it a lot, but you don't have much. <laughs> you don't have much science to support it. Uh, so I think it's more these exercises that are somehow um, mimicking parts of the running movement that, that are yeah that we have proof of yeah um what about altitude training that's another topic that you uh brought up in the review how is that used um many of the best athletes are living at altitude long parts of the year um especially african runners um, but also some european Others are using it systematically. 
kind of both as part of the periodization of training, uh, but also to kind of three to four week uh, camps uh, at 2,000 meters around. That's kind of the common altitude. Um, and then, you, of course, you have you have some examples that has not used it systematically. Um, but I, I would say that in running, there is a big tradition for it. Then, of course, if you look into the literature and science, which is, this is a very difficult area to do research on. <laughs> it's not easy, and especially not when you talk about 1% uh, differences and, and very small effects. Um, so I would be very careful on concluding, but of course, there, there is not a very strong scientific evidence on the effect of of altitude training per se. Um, but then, of course, you have some who look at the randomized control designs that are done. There are not many that didn't show any big effects. And then you have others who say that, of course, you don't get effect if you don't kind of optimize nutritional factors, training factors, you paradise it into the training program, etc. Then you have also say it's the training camp effect. Kind of being at these nice places to train gives a good effect in itself. Uh, you can run for runners. You can run with less mechanical loading um, um, because both because it's kind of the, the oxygen pressure is lower, so you get the metabolic loading at a lower speed, so you can train more probably uh, without having too high mechanical loading. Um, and, um, and and you get a very good kind of periodization of the training. So, so it's kind of the, the, the ultimate effect of this is a big scientific discussion. Uh, so so uh, but what we at least see in our review is that it's used by most good distance runners um, currently. And those that don't live at altitude, but they go on camp, what is the minimum duration that they would normally use for those camps? Yeah, three, three to four weeks. Um, mm. And I, I would probably say that there might be some discussions if two or three weeks are also effective. But I think in runners, you, you, we see that they are often there for longer times. Um, and it's very interesting because I think if they didn't feel they got a good effect of it, then... Uh, assume they would not have done it. So, yeah. so this is, um, and many, if, if they measure kind of hemoglobin mass before and after, you see uh, at least some groups who seems to get quite good effects of it. But then you don't, of course, you can't prove, you don't have a control group in these uh, top athletes. So you can't really say kind of what is cause and effect. But uh, personally, I think that you can get, um, you can get uh, some effects on on the blood, uh, especially on those who are really responding well to it and and, and did their training in a good way. Um, and then I think the kind of the effect of reduced mechanical loading uh, can be positive for runners in this period. Um, and of course, the training you should utilize the training camp effect. So. So I have I have a much much bigger belief than in in proper altitude training than in in training in lowland sleeping in a altitude tent. So I think yeah, I would recommend people to go up and enjoy the nature and train outdoors and 
utilize all those effects depending on if you choose to do altitude training. Yeah, that, that is a very good point that if, if we don't really know exactly where the effect is coming from, then the altitude tent really puts all your eggs in, in that one yeah. basket of spending time in the hypoxic environment. Whereas, yeah, mm -hmm. I would, the actual effect might be a mixture of different factors, including the nature, uh, the training camp effect, uh, being there with training partners and so on. So great great point and um yeah other than these things that we discussed so far regarding training characteristics are are there any other characteristics that you would like to point out that we that we haven't discussed yet that you think are important from this review you can say that um i think the role of um of um of the quality of training is important and also kind of uh, how you puzzle together your training program so kind of each of the sessions are good and one session is interacting with the upcoming one so that you get kind of many good sessions with high quality throughout kind of the training week um, so i think looking into micro parallelization of kind of how do you puzzle together these sessions so they can interact with each other and that each of them are good and at high quality, and that the accumulated effect of them are, are, are interacting. I think that's that's kind of that's the art of it, and where the good coaches are really kind of uh, uh, yeah working together with athletes to find kind of the optimized program for each each athlete. And uh, and, I, and what I see is that's one project that we're currently working on. We we have now interviewed and looked into data from the most successful coaches in, across endurance sports uh, in Norway in the same group uh, as on this uh, research. And we see kind of how the importance of kind of how the coach and athletes is interacting in order to, 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 uh, to learn. It's not just giving the athlete a training program. It's these daily kind of adjustments and, and uh, Taking the right decisions at the right time. I think um, we shouldn't we shouldn't forget the the art uh, when we art of coaching or and daily adjustments when we talk about training. That's really really uh, important. And the learning and make it a learning process. I think learn how to do good sessions. We talk so much about intensity and lactate and all these things, but it's kind of work systematically. Build your database. Learn from each sessions. Um, so if this is a gradual learning process where you kind of you build up the database and you know how you should start the sessions, um, you know how you should respond, that provides you the insurance systems to to do good sessions and to stop when you should stop because you you then see this is not good enough. This is not this doesn't make me better. Um, and then, then you, I think, I think that's kind of making this as a learning process is um, basically what will drive development over time. Um, mm, yeah, that's what we see across sports in in good coaches and athletes. So we had a little bit of a technical glitch, but we're back. Uh, and yeah, the next question: if we 
take a summary of, of this research and our discussion so far today, what are the main things that you would like the listeners to uh, take away from, uh, from, from the information that we have discussed here? Yeah, I think, um, of course, um, a high running volume at uh, relatively low intensity is, of course, what we, we see among all distance and marathon runners, um, and it, which is combined with quite a lot of running at kind of sub-threshold in the preparation period as a foundation. And then there is a gradually shift in more race-specific training. And then that will, is what will distinguish also a marathon runner from a track runner, which is a more focused training around the marathon-specific long runs for a marathon and more uh, sessions at getting closer and closer to race speed for track runners, which brings higher intensities. Um, but still, it's not... We need to remember it's not kind of a, it's a gradual shift there, and it's always maintaining uh, the foundations in training throughout the entire year. So it's, I think that's, um, and then have continuity, avoid setbacks and injuries. Uh, and I think uh, puzzling together the training program so you can get high quality of each session and at the same time, um, the ability to accumulate um, high training loads, uh, both at speeds that are at close to race speed or sub-threshold, but also the total volume. So I think, yeah, I think that would be the, the key. Yeah, no, good, good summary. And uh, are there, is there anything that you would, would you, could you give any advice to amateur runners that, or what are the things that you that you think amateur runners would maybe need to improve the most? Like common mistakes that you see amateur runners do, and and how they could maybe do things more effectively. Yeah, I think um, I would, as an amateur, um, focus on learning how to do a good session, um, build up volume progressively to avoid injury. Um, and uh, and then have kind of find out, gradually learn how to build up the volume so you actually get effect of the training. Because I think that's what many people miss. They kind of they think that training more, training harder makes you better, but you need kind of to learn how to do good sessions so that you are motivated and able to train well the day after again and the day after. Um, and then you can gradually progress your volume while still improving the quality of your training sessions. And then having a decent intensity control is, is important in running, I think. Um, and then, of course, I think as an amateur, you just need to adapt training to your life. It's kind of like your life philosophy and your training philosophy must be aligned. Um, because in the end... It's the effect of training that counts and, uh, and uh, the adaptations that you get out of it. And then you, you need to be, be focused on that. Yeah. Yeah, the typical example would be if you, if you sleep five hours a night, you're un- unlikely to adapt to the, to yeah, the training. Uh, and uh, yeah, some general questions. Uh, what would you tell your uh, 20-year-old self uh, as, an, as an athlete, as a con- cross-country skier, if you could go back in time? Then I would say, uh, listen to your body. It tells you the truth. Um, and do what is right for you today. 
don't look at the others, don't follow them, do what is right for you today and trust it. In the end, that mm. will make uh, the best effect of the training. Um, it's not so important to win the training, uh, but it's important to do what is right for you and get the effect of it. Um, mm. And I think um, check that you get the effect that you should and do honest evaluations around it. So you gradually adapt your training to get the effect. It's not the aim to get as many hours of, or vo high volume as possible or to many high, as many high intensity sessions as possible, but focus on getting the effect. And then in the end, I think we'll also tolerate more and more of these tough sessions. How how would you check that? Would you do? Would you use lab testing or or field testing or competitions? A good combination. Um, I think uh, you have the possibility to have standardized training sessions, testing in the lab, of course, now and then. But I think more, more what you do in your daily training is is and at least for runners that's very measurable. It's a little bit more tricky for for a cross country skier, but it, you can have a treadmill running sessions gradually and then you at least see how you respond physiologically yeah and then as a last two things it's kind of look at competitions and training as a learning arena go out there and learn something new about yourself about your training make sure that you log it so you can really learn from it i think that's uh, in the long run that that will make uh, a good, good effect Yeah, and uh, you mentioned you have worked with a lot of coaches, work, work with, with coaches, and you do research with coaches. So when, when you interact with coaches that, that have achieved great results with their athletes, uh, and another question that I have is when, when you have interacted with lots of coaches, both in, in practice and in, and in research settings, Uh, have you seen any common denominators in the attributes and the skills that that really good coaches uh, exhibit? Yeah, I would say the most common thing that at least I've seen is that the process um, of the good coaches are very often coach-driven but athlete-centered. Uh, it's kind of coaches who are kind of, they have good competence, they They have a very clear opinion of their training philosophy. They understand the sport very well, but they focus around the athlete so they are able to develop trust. They follow up the athletes close, closely and they don't take away the autonomy and the ownership of the athlete. They actually build that. Um, so although it's quite well coach-driven, it builds autonomy, it builds ownership in the athlete. Uh, although they are, uh, they have so good competence and experience that they are really able to both challenge and support the athlete uh, on the road. So I think that's um, that's what I would highlight there. Mm. And what is something that you have changed your mind about in training or in uh, science in the last few years? I'm not sure if it changed my mind, but I maybe developed my mind. Uh, I think periodization uh, and what periodization really is, uh, both on a macro level and a micro level. Um, and I think for me, it's more and more about kind of um, having progression in the training that you have control over. 
and especially both on the macro, meso, and micro level, is how to learn the body to gradually adapt, to make the body adaptable. So if you have changes in the training stimulus, you can, of course, de decide what areas you want to develop, what areas you want to maintain, but you can also continuously help the body to be adaptable. I think that's the biggest problem among many athletes, that you just, you just kind of... You don't adapt anymore. It's kind of uh, you lose your adaptability. So I think always having body adaptable to training is is really important. And I think using periodization as a tool for that, and also the micro dosing of training in in, in the training puzzle, I think that's that's a key there. That's that's really interesting. So so when you talk about periodization, you talk about progression. Would you say is it? Would you is the progression here the key you think, or is it the the changing of training stimulus when or what what do you think is the key of making sure that you keep adapting to the training? I, I think both. I think you, you need to provide new stimulus to the body, uh, and then I, you also need to have kind of an offloading and onloading. So it's kind of you need to be aware of what stimuli you provide, what you want to develop what you want to maintain i think being aware of that is important in and then you might shift that throughout the training year so when you kind of got into saturation on one factor you kind of change focus gradually a bit so that you can get new stimulus that is is, is continuing the development i think that makes something with your mind as well because you feel that you develop in the area that you you are shifting Uh, and then I think also kind of having a little bit offloading and then increase again in, in, in stimulus, it makes kind of the body uh, be more adaptable uh, and you have more control because if you accumulate too much training over too long time without uh, having control that you actually get kind of an effect of it, it might be that when you then start your tapering or you offload, then it kind of falls together because you it wasn't an optimal balance of load and recovery it was just that you survived if you know what i said i see too many athletes who actually just, they survived their preparation training but when they then should get uh, in good shape of it then they just fall together because it's they didn't along the way have the small offloading of training to actually see how the body responded um, mm. then you can't really control the training process so i think That's a factor that I've been more and more aware of, at least. Then, yeah. of course, tapering, as I talked about earlier, where I think how you adapt to the situation, um, which is it's really important. And, and that's pretty much the same, because you, you then load the body, focus on a different capacity. You see that if you increase this a little bit when approaching the competitions, then you might take out the last effect. Then you need to offload, uh, sufficiently and then mobilize towards the competition. So it's, it, 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 it has also something to do with periodization. So tapering and periodization is, is kind of brothers and sisters. And uh, finally, let's go into the rapid fire questions. So take just one sentence to answer these. And the first one is, what is your favorite book or resource related to endurance sports? Well, well you know, I read a lot. So, but uh, if I, I will lift up um, Endure, By Michael Hutchinson. Alex, Alex Hutchinson. Alex, Alex Hutchinson. Sorry, 
Uh, so I think that's um, that was a nice. There was some provocative inputs there, some new theories. Um, it made me think. So that was a was a good one. I like being challenged. Yeah, uh, past guest of the show, so I will link to that episode in the in the show notes as well. And and it is the most voted uh, best book, best resource <laughs> from everybody that has been on on this podcast. Uh, and what's an important habit that you have benefited from, athletically, professionally, or personally? I would say uh, my training diary. I think that's. Um, that's something we use systematically in Norway. It's kind of having control over the training and use the training diary as, as a learning tool. So you can actually, you don't do it to please the coach, but to learn. And I started to use that when I worked as work as well. So I have my work diary as a learning tool, uh, which is both a planning tool and a learning tool. Uh, and that has helped me a lot in my professional work. So using 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 the same methods as we as athletes and coaches do in, in the working pro process, it's kind of been I work in exactly the same as athletes do in mm. my job. Yeah, that is really good. And uh, finally, who is somebody that you look up to or that has inspired you? When I was a kid, and I think Bjorn Daly was the hero of Norwegian cross country skiing. So, and he also wrote the book about his training and how we lived and how we worked. So I think I read that 10 times. Um, so that, that was inspiring me a lot. So it was at least a starting point for <laughs> reading and somehow trying to learn from the best ones. So I think that was, was a good start. And, uh, and then I had my father who was joining me around on athletics and uh, cross-country skiing. And we he kind of, uh, we were learning together and he was kind of facilitating my curiosity, I think, um, uh, on this path so i think those two can can share the body mm, yeah i think uh bjorn Daly, i would love to read that book because uh, when i was a kid when i first started watching cross-country skiing i think he was at the towards the end of his career but still like uh, winning big big races big championships and uh, uh of course i was supporting uh other athletes uh that some of which in the end turned out to be dopers so <laughs> it was maybe a good thing that Bjorn Daly still managed to beat them but uh, but yeah he, he's somebody that uh, from from a very young age was one of the first endurance athletes that I saw that was a you know a really I guess a, a hero for me as well just in terms of how good he was even though he wasn't the, the one that I supported the most but yeah really <laughs> I'm sure that would be a really interesting book and uh, yeah just to uh, to to finish this interview where can people follow you and your work yeah, you probably find me on PubMed or ResearchGate at least uh, I'm also on Twitter and Facebook I try, we try to share uh, research there as well so so I think, uh, yeah, if you want to have a look into the entire research we do, it's kind of ResearchGate is a nice portal. Uh, on PubMed, you find most of it. And then we, we kind of post a bit on Twitter and Facebook yeah, regularly. So have a look there. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the training characteristics of world-class distance runners, as we said, is uh, open access and it's available on, on ResearchGate. Well, it's, I don't know if it's technically open access, but it's available on ResearchGate. So so that we will link to the, the full article there for people to go and have a look. Um, thank you so much, Eivind. It was uh, great to chat to you. Uh, and uh, yeah, hope that we can do it again another time. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Bye. 
I hope that you enjoyed that interview. As always, you can find the show notes on scientifictriathlon.com. And uh, as mentioned, you can find a link to the paper that we discussed, the training characteristics of world-class distance runners on integration of scientific literature and results proven practice as open access on ResearchGate. I will link to that in the show notes. Now, before the end of today's episode, I just want to remind you that we are offering training camps during the winter in some of the best winter climates that Europe has to offer, Mallorca in Spain and the Algarve, Portugal. We are running the camp in the Algarve at the end of January, and this one is for advanced athletes only. Uh, And then Mallorca is our bigger flagship camp that is open to a wide range of abilities in Mallorca at the end of March. You can check out all the information about both of these camps on scientifictriathlon.com and email me directly if you have additional questions or want to register. Finally, big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Fuel and Hydration, that you can find on precisionfuelandhydration.com. Use their free fuel and hydration planner to understand your fluid, electrolyte, and carbohydrate needs, and get a specific and effective race strategy, and book a free video consultation with the team if you want to refine it further. Use the code TTS22 at checkout for 15% off your first order of fueling and hydration products. And thank you to Senate. Use the Senate Swim Trainer to improve your technique, power, stamina, and swim training consistency. You can try the Senate risk-free for up to 30 days, and get the special Senate and TTS bundle, including the swim trainer and a number of Zenate training plans and on-demand workouts on zenateswimtrainer.com forward slash TTS. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlons.